Well, good morning, Trinity Church. Hey, I just have to brag about you guys this morning. Yesterday, this, uh, this whole weekend, actually, Friday and Saturday, we uh, prepared for and had a wedding here, and all kinds of Trinity people were involved, and I was just so impressed. This was, uh, this was actually a family wedding. It felt like all of us were family, and I just want to tell you, I think you did a great job on that. In fact, I got a text from uh, Jason and Dina at 12.04 a.m. last <laughs> this morning, actually, right? And I want to read it for you because this just makes me feel so proud of Trinity Church and what you guys have done. He says, Dina and I are overwhelmed with emotion by the level of love and support that all of you showed Justin and Brittany on their most special day. There are no words to express how much joy there was and such a family atmosphere. I know there are many more that were involved than I have on this string because I don't have their numbers, but please pass this along to anyone missing. We love you all so very much and are so very thankful for you with love, Jason and Dina. So thank you to every one of you who are involved. I know many of you stuck around to almost midnight to do cleanup, and others were here earlier and months ahead of time to do this, and so we're very grateful. And actually, Jason, I see you sitting right here, so I'm, I'm amazed you made it this morning. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so well done, Trinity Church. Uh, I also want to point out to you before we get into Malachi uh, that this next week we are starting a sermon series that I am really, really excited about. Uh, it's a series that we've entitled Called, and it essentially focuses on what it means to follow Jesus uh, intentionally, relationally, in discipleship. And um, my entire life, uh, honestly, has been the product of this process. From the age of five when I came to Jesus Christ, over all of these years, there have been people, men and women, who have invested in me intentionally, relationally, and taught me how to follow Jesus. So the person I am today, the pastor I am today, is the product of this process we're going to look at over the next four weeks. So I really hope that you'll come and be a part of this. This is what Trinity is called to. This is what the church is called to. And what also excites me, and I'm thankful for, is that uh, Bill uh, Bourne, Jr., and... Um, Jared Montagna are going to be preaching this series uh, because tomorrow morning at 8.45, I have a total knee replacement going on at Redlands Hospital. Uh, I've been looking for this for a couple of years now, and my knee finally said in March, it's time. And uh, so tomorrow morning, if you would remember to pray for me at 8.45, that's when my surgery begins, and uh, I'll be gone for four weeks uh, recuperating. But in the meantime, please plan on coming to this series. This is one of the most powerful series I think we can do as a church in our culture today. So again, Jared, Bill, thank you so very much for, for doing this for us. And let's take a minute and pray, and then we are getting into the last part of Malachi, which is the end of the entire Old Testament this morning. And God has some great things for us, so let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you've made us a family of God here at Trinity, and I know that we're one of those microcosms of the church that is global. But what a privilege to be a part of this family that loves each other, that serves each other well. And it, that just crystallized this weekend and was such a delight to watch and to be a part of. Father, we, uh, we pray for this passage this morning. Uh, this is a, a place in your word that really uh, clearly calls to us and invites us to take action. And so I pray, Father, that as we look at this, you would prepare our hearts to hear your word, 
to hear what it is you want us to say in this time in human history, in this time in preparing for your kingdom. God, we ask that because we know that your word does speak to us. It guides us. It gives us everything we need for life. And uh, in our world today, this is a very important part of it. So, Father, help us to hear you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we're wrapping up this series that we've been called Intensity, um, we are wrapping it up with, well, some intensity, okay? This last part, this last section from Malachi 3.13 through the end is a challenge to all of us to make a fierce and potent decision, to make a choice that is clear and, and determinative. And God actually brings us at this point in Malachi to a crossroads. And it's a crossroads where we either have to turn to the left or to the right. There is no middle path at this point in Malachi in the thinking of God. And in this crossroads, he asks us, he wants to know, are, are we with him or are we standing against him? Are we people who will serve him alone with our entire life, or are we people who are going to strive with him all of our lives and keep asking these questions that we've seen throughout Malachi? He crystallizes this moment, and he calls each one of us to a choice, a choice that is determinative and definite. It is a a choice that affects both the here and now and eternity. Our eternal status is wrapped up in this final section. So if you have your Bibles, I know you do, Would you turn to Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 13. And as you turn there, or turn your phones on and get to that location, keep in mind we're going to do some cross-referencing this morning. We're going to take this passage, and we're going to unfold it, and we're going to begin to connect it to the other parts of Scripture that God has used to enlighten this passage. So limber up your fingers and get ready to take a look at a few other passages. But to begin with, let's begin by reading Malachi 3, 13 through the end of the uh, book, chapter 4, verse 6. Notice how this begins. This is God speaking. He says, Your words have been hard against me. You ever thought about the fact that what we say to each other and what we think can be hard in God's hearing, hard for him to hear? But you say, How have we spoken against you? God's reply is, You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as if mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Verse 16 is a contrast. So you can begin to see the two directions here. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention, and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And he said, they shall be called mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them like a man spares his son who serves him, has favor toward his son versus the servants in his household. I will look at them with favor. And verse 18, then... Then, once more, you shall see this distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And chapter 4, verse 1 says, for, so you remember, whenever you see the four, you have to think about it as a stop sign. Whoa, hold on. Stop the speed reading. There's, There's a pause here. 
He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant, the proud, the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, complete elimination, devastation. For you who fear, the, uh, you who fear my name, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And then he says this, a very interesting change of direction. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel, the Ten Commandments and all the 600 plus commandments that we find in the first five books of the Old Testament. He says, remember these, and again, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's how the Old Testament ends. That last word is the word chaos, destruction. But did you see the crossroads? Did you see them listed for us there? Did you see the signage posted at the crossroads? Did you hear the choice that God is calling to us to make this morning? It's embedded in verses 14, 15, and 16 of chapter 3. So take a look back there. I want to read it for you again, and then I'm going to read it for you uh, in the message translation where it gets a little more crystallized. Look at verse 14. You have said, this is a group of people, you have said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers prosper, but they even put God to the test and they escape. Do you see that group of people? Notice in verse 16, he changes it and he says, Then those other people who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And God paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So you have these two people. Listen to the message translation. When you said it doesn't pay to serve God, what do we ever get out of it? When we did what he said and went around with long faces, serious about God of the angel armies, what difference did it make? Those who take life into their own hands, they're the lucky ones. They break all the rules. They get ahead anyway. They push God to the limit, and they get away with it. Do we ever hear that today in our world? Do we observe that today in our world? This is a group of people who have come to that crossroads, and this is their perspective. Look at verse 16 in the message. It says, Then those whose lives honored God got together, and they talked it over. God saw what they were doing, and he listened. I love that phrase. Do you ever wonder if God notices your life? Look at this. God saw what they were doing, and he listened in. And a book was opened in God's presence, and minutes were taken of the meeting. Do you ever get tired of being in meetings? Remember, God loves them. He writes this stuff down as he looks at who we are and what we're doing. And it says, he put the names of the God-fearers written down, all of the names of those God's name. So at the crossroads, we see this sign right at the middle of the crossroads, will you serve the Lord? And we have to choose. 
No, I won't serve the Lord. I'm going to be part of that first group who looks around and I'm frustrated with life and how people get away with stuff and I'm angry at God. Where's the justice? Or we become part of that second group who says, I will serve the Lord. I will intensify my faith. I will follow him. So in Malachi, on the one hand, we see folks who have a history with God, a rich history with God. Their parents had served God. Their grandparents had served God. But now, now they're getting a little tired of all of that devotion. They're um, feeling like God, serving God has no lasting purpose. Um, we're tired of it. There's no value in it. We're feeling like we're not getting our money's worth out of this relationship and this service. All of the physical efforts, all of the spiritual um, investments that I'm making, I just I don't see what the value is. And so they turn to the left at this point in Malachi's history. Have you ever felt that way? It's possible to know God for a while, and maybe even we've, we've served him in a variety of ways, but now the pace is getting harder. The environment is getting more challenging. We're not sensing as much progress. The value of our hard work seems lacking, and our humble and generous efforts don't seem to be paying any dividends anymore. I mean, where is God? What is he doing in my life? And worse of all, we see people around us who are testing God, who are living without any regard for God, and they're getting along just great. So we begin to ask the question, why am I doing what I'm doing if everybody else doesn't obey God and, and they just seem to do just fine? The fact is, many faithful men, women, and young people in Malachi's day found themselves at that crossroads. And they have this conversation with God and they're looking to the left, and they're looking to the right, and they're frustrated, and they're confused, and they begin to fade in their intensity. And this is why Malachi's written to these people in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, is because their intensity is dimming, and he wants to challenge them. They're leaning toward the left. But in Malachi's day, uh, there were also others who were standing at this crossroads, and they were looking at both paths, and they felt drawn to God. They felt like their intensity was refueling as they thought about who God was, and they even talked with one another. I love this picture. They're not talking to God. They're talking to each other. And even though there's evil around them and the challenges and difficulties of serving God are very real, and there seems to be this disconnect between following God faithfully and receiving blessing and goodness, and they too have witnessed all these other individuals who are reacting to their righteous choices. And in that day, also what we would call canceling them or labeling them bigots or haters or evildoers, firing them from their jobs, limiting their public speech, diminishing their civic uh, freedoms and rights. They see all of this happening, but in spite of it all, they choose to increase their devotion to God, and they choose the path to the right. And they intensify their efforts to serve God. And God notices. So if you ever wonder if God is aware of your intense faith in him, and it doesn't seem like he is, he is listening. He leans in close to them. Look at verse 16 again. The wording here is so beautiful. The Lord paid attention. He's not this distant deist God who created everything and then just walked away with a disinterested gait. He listened to them. He paid attention, and he writes this book. So this morning, here's what I want to do with, with us. I, I want to take 
time in the rest of Malachi 3 and 4 and talk about this choice. What is the choice? And how do we make this choice in our culture today? What goes into making this choice to intensify my faith, pursue God, take the path to the right? So there's three things Malachi gives us this morning. Number one is we can fuel our fear of God. It is possible to do this in the environment in which we find ourselves. And we just read earlier verses 16 and 17, but what I want you to notice here is that not all of these people listening to Malachi feel resentful about serving God or about how God is responding to this evil world. They have chosen to fear the Lord. And this fact is mentioned twice in verse 16. So take a a notice of that in your text. You might circle the word feared the Lord or feared and esteemed him. It's mentioned twice. So they've decided, I am going to choose to do this. And the way that they do that is by recognizing what was written in the Mosaic Law as well as in King Solomon's book, Ecclesiastes. There's an amazing verse at the end of Ecclesiastes that says, here is how you fear God. Let's take a look at it. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14 says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, so Solomon is writing at the end of his observation of life, and he says, when you get to the end of this study of life, when everything has been heard, here's the conclusion. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Why? Because, and he says this applies to every person, God will bring every act to judgment, everything that is hidden, whether it is good or evil. God will do that. It may take longer than we think. When we talk about justice in our culture and evil and uh, retribution and, and correcting the wrongs that have been made, he says God will take care of this. John Piper read this passage, and he wrote this. To fear the Lord is to tremble at the thought of offending him by unbelief and disobedience. He says, it is the feeling that God is not to be trifled with. Read that again. It is the feeling that God is not to be trifled with. He says, it is the very opposite of the attitude of the people in Malachi 3, 13 through 15, who speak with an incredible swagger, saying it doesn't pay to serve God. On the other hand, those who fear God shudder at the thought of speaking that way about their majestic father. Anything that dishonors God is anathema to those who fear God. So do you get the sense of where this is going in Malachi? He begins to write about the future, that day that is coming, and he's contrasting it and comparing it to what they are thinking right then, And he's saying to them, you need to continue to nurture this perspective that God is majestic, that God is great, that we tremble at his name, that we stand in awe of him, and do that together. I love what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says about us today, right? It says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. That's Malachi. These people got together and they talked about God together. And he says, this is the habit of some. But encourage one another, and even more so, as the day of Christ nears. That is for us today. What you are doing this morning, right here and now, when you're in your small groups, when you gather with other Christians and you talk about God, you physically are present with them. God says, this is the seedbed out of which the fear of God arises. This is where we learn to trust God. And when we do this, when we gather together, 
God pays attention to those gatherings. You remember the verse where two or three are gathered? God is there. Right? Now, it's said in the context of a church having to deal with difficult problems, but he's saying, I am here. And I love how it says in the Hebrew, the Lord paid attention to their words. Listen to this. This is the Hebrew word, kashab. And it says, it's the imagery of leaning close, listening carefully to not miss one word. Those of you who wear hearing aids, practice this a lot, right? Lisa keeps saying to me, Doug, I think you're getting there almost. You know, you didn't hear everything I said. So I have to kind of lean a little closer. This is the picture of a, a grandparent trying to decipher the gibberish of a young grandchild by leaning closer and saying, what did you say? Right? This is the imagery of a newlywed couple on their honeymoon when the bride leans her head on the shoulder of her beloved to hear every treasured word that he says. It's a driver leaning toward the car phone or speaker to hear every word of an important business call. It's this idea of tilting the head, leaning in, carefully listening to every single word. And God does this, not just when we pray to him, but when you and I gather around our dinner tables, around a restaurant table, when we gather in our small groups, when we gather as Christians, and we talk together about this great God that we serve, his power, his plans, his promises. And the question God is asking us today is, are you increasing your intensity or diminishing it? I read an author this week, his name is T.V. Moore. And he said this, when the wicked are talking against God, the righteous should talk for him. Religious conversation is necessary all the more for the very reasons that often chill and repress it. When a fire burns low, the coals that are alive should be brought near together, right? That they may be blown into a flame. So when all is cold and dead, living Christians should draw near and seek the breathings of the Spirit and kindle each other by mutual utterance. They not only feared God, it says in verse 16, they esteemed God. Now there's a difference here, okay? Fear is that general response to God of awe and honoring him. Esteem means to actually calculate, to reckon, to impute a great value to something. So now we're going beyond just the sense of God is great. Now we're beginning to think about it deeply. We're drawing conclusions, forming new opinions about something we're thinking about. It's what we do with a coin like this. So I asked Zach to actually put this on the screen for us. I was helping my mom move from independent living to assisted living, and I'm her trustee, and so I keep all of her valuables. And I, I saw this coin on the floor as we were moving her. And honestly, I looked at it and thought, what is a Chuck E. Cheese token doing in my mom's home? Right? So I picked it up and went, wait a second, this has got some weight to it. And there's uh, something on the front, it's the bust of somebody, looks like he's got a laurel here, and I looked it up. This was minted in the 3rd century A.D. And this is Emperor Constantine. When the church was made the Church of Rome, this was minted. And I, I looked at this and I went, oh, I, I need to value this, right? I'm not just going to throw it away somewhere. I'm going to esteem this. And, and so that's what I've done. It goes in with all of her other valuables because it has a certain amount of value. And folks, when we fear God, the natural result is to esteem him to calculate and think about the greatness of who he is. And 
This is what Malachi is saying to us as we talk together. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great preachers of the past, looked at this passage and he wrote this. In this passage are revealed the secrets of strength in an age of failure. They thought about his name. The Hebrew word translated thought is elsewhere translated regard. They thought upon his name, and that is they took an inventory of the wealth they had in his name. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Tzidkenu, Jehovah Shammah. These people had nothing left to think of, these people in Malachi's day, other than the name. The grandeur of their nation was perished. The prophetic voices were silent. The priests had corrupted the covenant. The kings had passed away. All about them was formality devoid of power. Think of our culture today. What we see is a formality devoid of power. We see the structure. We don't see the change that it can produce. And so they looked around and they said, there's really nothing left other than the name. David, or Solomon wrote in Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is set on high. So Campbell concludes, When the king has failed, the priest is corrupted, the prophet is silent, the national power has declined, and we are bewailing the failure of our age. Then let us think on the name, take an inventory in the name, count it as our wealth, take time to go over our wealth in order to discover how rich we are. So here's the bottom line in this first point for Malachi. He says, the more we know our God, the more we stand in awe of him, value him, esteem him, speak of him, and encourage each other with him, the more intense our faith will become. So he begins by saying, if you want to intensify your faith, you need to fear the Lord and esteem him. Take time there. Secondly, he says... To grow in serving God at that crossroads, taking the right path, we can understand that God will not always be patient with wrongdoers. He isn't always going to be this patient, loving, gracious God when it comes to them. Look at verses 18 to the end of the chapter and then into chapter 4, verse 3. He says, then, once more, thinking about all of the Old Testament, they had seen God deal with evildoers over their history, then once more, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, the one who serves God, the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will become stubble, burned into nothingness. That day is coming. It will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Think of when we had the El Dorado fire up here in the mountains. All the trees, all the roots, gone. Just ashes remaining. He says, there is a day coming when this will take place. But, he says in verse 2, for you who fear my name, these things are going to happen, right? Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Uh, you're going to go out leaping like calves from a stall. Have you ever seen that, by the way? Okay, little calves that have been penned up for the night, and you open up the stall door, and boom, they are just kicking and leaping and running all over the place, getting their energy out. He says, in that day, you and I who serve the Lord and fear him will be like that. I can't wait for that after this knee surgery, right? 
to be able to do that type of energetic activity. You will tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet when I act on that day, says the Lord of hosts. Now, it's very interesting. In the Hebrew text, there is no chapter division here. All of you look down at chapter 4, right? You see that there? In the Masoretic text, there is no chapter 4. They see the thoughts so contained in the Masoretic text, chapter 3 actually goes from verse 19 through 24. They've just eliminated this chapter division that we have in our English Bibles. And the point that they are making is they sense this thought that the frustration we feel with evil and wrongdoing in our world, there is a day coming when God will make a distinction once again. And that distinction is very clear. And right now, today, he is exhibiting patience toward evil and wickedness. If you ever wonder, why doesn't God do something? The word of God says he is being patient, not willing that any should perish. Uh, take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter 3. And if you're doing it electronically or digitally this morning, you can just listen as I read. The New Living Translation, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, says this. Folks, you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. There is no time sense for God. The Lord isn't really bound by time, being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. Listen to that. God does not want anyone to be destroyed. He says, but for everyone to come to repentance. Two weeks ago, Bill talked about mercy, God's first step. And he also hinted at this coming judgment. And we look at our world today and we say, God does not want any evildoer to perish. He wants them to come to uh, repentance. So Malachi gets to this part of the text, and look into your text there, you'll see it. He says, for behold, the day is coming. So if you're worried about, is evil ever going to be addressed? Yes, it will. And he uses this word behold, which is this strong, vivid, enlivened expression of surprise and hope and expectation. And if we wrote it in our language today, we would write for, hey, look at that. Or, hey, don't miss this. Or as the Hebrew word literally expresses in the emotion, shazam. Pay attention, right? We've talked about this before. This is where he just grabs them by their shirt uh, and says, hey, look, don't forget this. This day is coming. God has actually planned a day to judge all evil. And God calls it the day. Or we have seen at other times the phrase, the day of the Lord. Have you heard that phrase before? Raise your hand if you've heard the day of the Lord. Okay, so this is what he's talking about here. That day. You see that repeated 19 times in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament, the day of the Lord. So he's orienting us to the future, which is why we fear the Lord, because we know everything that has been said, done, or thought will be brought to judgment. And he says, it is a day of fire and darkness and pain and suffering. Listen to Isaiah 2, 20 through 21. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, and they'll throw them to the moles and to the bats. They will enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. 
Isaiah says in chapter 13, verses 6 and 9, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. Jesus wrote about this in Matthew 24 and 25. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So Malachi says here, there is a day coming when God will one more time distinguish the left, over here, the left from the right. He will draw this deep line in the sand and that deep line in the sand will say, who fears and serves the Lord and who doesn't? So folks, true righteousness, true faith in God, true fear of God, and, and true service to him always begins where? At the cross. This is the only starting point where we can truly be transformed to be people who love God and fear God and serve him and live by righteousness. It is impossible to believe in him and do all of these things from any other starting point. It is impossible because we are broken as people. We're human beings with a sin nature. And so how can we ever serve God fully? And he also goes on to point that true wickedness and true evil consists in rejecting the goodness of God at the cross. That is true wickedness. So we might say to ourselves, I'm not a wicked person. Gosh, I can point out to a number of people who are wicked, not me. But if we have not come to the cross and bowed the knee to Christ and said, I want your grace, I want your mercy, I want your goodness, I want your transformation, God says we are truly living wicked lives. In fact, think about it. Every other form of wickedness in our world today, whether it be murder or greed or hate or, or lust or envy or adultery or lies or, or stealing, all of them are an outworking of the heart that refuses to follow God. That's our natural nature. Paul points this out in the New Testament. The spirit and the flesh war against each other. So the cross is the starting point. And God says, the day is coming when I will judge all who reject Jesus Christ and have lived for themselves. But for those who fear and serve God, boy, there's a much different future awaiting. And I want to encourage you with this. Look back at Malachi 2, or it's chapter 4, verse 2. You see it here? Listen to the word you. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. There will be healing of the human condition, of our world ultimately, of the transformation into eternity. And again, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. There will be this joy that God gives. And you shall tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. There will be victory over injustice and wrong. When will that happen? See, that's a big question today, isn't it? When is this going to happen? And I know we have a variety of theological perspectives, but I want to share with you this morning what I have become convinced of. So this is more uh, my thinking. But I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, all right? We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. This records that future moment of deliverance for us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 9. We'll put it up on the screen as well. But here's what Paul says. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons. You know what those times are, right? That's the word chronos. The days, the weeks, the months, the years, the decades. Concerning the flow of time and seasons, 
is the word kainos, which means epics, events, things that are going to be happening. The day of the Lord, the arrival of the Antichrist, all of these events. He says, concerning the flow of all of these things, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. Did you know that? Nobody has to write any more books about this. Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Jesus writes about this again in Matthew 24 and 25. But look at verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. This is not something that is going to happen around you and you go, oh, gosh, I wish I had known about that. He says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet, the hope of salvation. And look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, as followers of Christ who serve him and fear him, are not destined to wrath, God's wrath. He's not going to put us through that, he says, because we are the children of the light. This day isn't going to surprise us. We're going to know about it. And in earlier in 1 Thessalonians, look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. He says, this same drumbeat is going through Thessalonians. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God to come. So those who fear the Lord, those who entrust themselves to Jesus, those who serve God will not suffer the wrath of God on evildoers and this world. We are not destined for it and we will be delivered from it. So now the big question becomes, so when is the wrath of God showing up? Because I know we're going to avoid it. When does it happen in our world? Go to Revelation 6. God tells us. It's right at the start of the tribulation. Look at Revelation 6, 12 through 17. Again, we'll put it up on the screen here. And I warned you earlier, didn't I, we were going to do cross-referencing? So we're not surprised, right? Okay, all right, here we go. When Jesus opened the sixth, sixth seal, I looked, John says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then... The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks. Listen to this, verse 16 and 17. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And what does the next verse say? And from the wrath of the Lamb. Hide us. This is the beginning of the wrath of God on evil in our world today. He says in verse 17, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? Does that sound like Malachi 3 and 4? It does, doesn't it? 
as he talks about the oven and the fire and the stubble and the removal of root and branch and all of this on that day. Now, I want you to notice something. What chapter of Revelation is this? Yeah, it's Revelation 6. What happens in chapters 1 through 5? Well, if you turn to Revelation, if you want to do that, I'll tell you what happens there, but you can look. It says, chapter 1, John sees Jesus in his glorified, all-powerful identity. And he, he falls to his feet. Chapters 2 and 3 is a call to the churches to stick with their first love. Intensify your faith. Be faithful. Keep worshiping God. Keep serving. Chapter 4 is a glimpse of God's throne room and the singing of the angels and those who have gone before us, worshiping him in his throne room. And it, that follows into chapter 5 where you see the singing of a song of celebration by all of heaven that Jesus is finally opening the scroll of judgment against all the evil in this world. So that's chapters 1 through 5. Chapter 6 begins this outpouring of God's wrath on this evil world. This wrath that God has said, you will not endure it. You will be delivered from it. Anyone who has repented of their sins, anyone who has entrusted themselves to Jesus and his cleansing power, anyone whose life is now fearing God and serving him, we have a different future to look forward to. You say, well, what is that future? What happens to us before the wrath, right? What's going on for us in verses or chapters 1 through 5? Are you curious about that? I hope you are. Let me tell you where you can find that. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is before the other passage we read in Thessalonians. This is the chapter right before that earlier description of the arrival of the day of the Lord and its wrath. Chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, again, about those who are asleep. Who are those who are asleep? Those who have died and gone before us. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, anyone here in that category? I hope so, right? We who are alive and remain, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive. Who is that again? Raise your hand if you're alive. All right, good. We who are alive and are left will be caught up together, snatched up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Look at verse 18. Therefore... Encourage one another with these words. And notice there's no wrath associated with this event. There is no divine judgment mentioned in association with this event. This is rescue and reunion. We who fear the Lord and serve him in this age will be removed from this world prior to the arrival of the day of God's wrath in Revelation 6. So what's going on in chapters 1 through 5 of Revelation? You and I will be present there. That's my conviction. I know we have a variety of theological opinions about it, but I can't get away from the fact that in Revelation 6, the wrath of God begins, and I am not called to wrath. 
So something has to happen, right? So we intensify our faith and service to God by fueling our understanding and fear of God. Secondly, by understanding that God is now being patient with wrongdoers, but he has set a specific day for judgment just for them. And number three and last, we can remember and live by God's covenant truths and messengers and thus be delivered from ultimate destruction. We can remember and live by these commands. Look at uh, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. He says, Remember that the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, remember them. And then he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And, when he, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God reminds the people in Malachi's day to look back to the past to be prepared for the future. Moses gave the Ten Commandments around, there are different opinions, but around 900 B.C., excuse me, 1300 B.C. This book is being written about 400 B.C., so he says to them, think about what happened 900 years ago, the covenant with Moses. My instructions on how do you approach a holy God. You guys have been in Egypt. You have no idea how to approach me. Here's how you approach me. These are the things to do, the statutes, the commands. Just follow them, and we'll have this relationship. What does Jesus say to us today? What is the covenant we look back on 2,000-plus years ago? The covenant of grace. The covenant at the cross, where we are told, this is my blood in the new covenant, where you come to God, not through all the things you have to do, but you come through my actions to bring you into God's presence. You come through the grace of the, the power of Christ's deliverance. So he says to us as Christians, you need to think back 2,000 plus years and remember what God has done for you, because that is going to have an impact on how you live life today. Think about the Word of God. Think about what it has to say to us. Remember things like Hebrews 4.12? For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart and mind. Why do we read the Word of God? Some people say, I've been in the, I've been in the Word this week. Well, that's great. Is the Word in you. Because its intention is to discern my thoughts and intentions, your thoughts and intentions, and compare them to what God wants us to do. This is why we spend time in the Word of God. We get into it so it gets into us. David writes in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How many of you want to know better how to live tomorrow? You have to read this. It tells us how to live tomorrow. It's a light to our feet. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I bet I could ask a dozen of you to quote this passage, right? It's a very familiar passage for us. All Scripture is God-breathed and is what? Profitable. How many of you want to earn a profit this week? All right? I do. This book is profitable. And by the way, when they wrote this, what were they looking back to? All Scripture. What was the All Scripture? The Old Testament. The New was being written. So he says, all of the Old Testament is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, 
and instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to be equipped to do a good job in life? You have to read the Bible. Do you want to know what righteousness is and how to do it? You have to read the Bible. By the way, this is a uh, verse that coaches use when they train people in sports, if they're a Christian coach. Do you know why? Teaching says this is how you do it. Reproof says, no, not like that. Correction says, do it this way. And at the end they say, ah, now you got it. See, that's what the Word of God does for us. This is why we spend time in it. One last verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the Word of God, which is indeed at work in you. You ever ask yourself the question, why isn't God doing more in my life? His question is, are you reading the book? Because this is the book that is at work in us who believe in it. So Malachi says to his people, go back to Moses. You need to read the law and all of that God asked you to do. And by the way, God jabs his finger toward the future and he says, Elijah's coming. So in Jesus' day, when John shows up, what is the question they ask John? Are you Elijah? Now, this is a metaphorical sense. One who will be like Elijah will come. But listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 11. He's talking about John the Baptist, and he says to the people, what did you go into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? You see how he's probing them? Did you go to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you, Malachi. For all of the prophets, all of the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. What was his job? It's in Malachi. It was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. It was generational reconciliation. And how does that happen? It's through the person of Jesus Christ, because when John came, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, Shazam, the Lamb of God, there he is, who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who's going to save us. So the Old Testament does not end with a curse, destruction. It ends with a call. Follow Jesus. He's the solution to everything we need. So this morning, Ben is going to be playing for us a song called Gratitude, um, and he will be singing it at one point as we end this service. Uh, this is not, we're not putting the words up, it's, it's more for reflection. But God has laid it on my heart to call us to this choice. Some of you have already come to that crossroads, and you are headed in the right direction. You have said, I will devote myself to God. I will read his word. I will intensify my faith. I will follow him. I will esteem him. And regardless of what our culture is doing, regardless of the, how difficult that is, we have said, I choose to do that. And if that's you this morning, we're going to give you time just to worship this God that you love. 
ask yourself questions of, am I serving in a way that would please him? Am I using my gifts? How am I fearing him in my life? There may be others of you this morning who have not made that choice. You're still standing at the crossroads. And you're still confused, and you're still hurt by injustice in the world, and you're struggling with how religiosity doesn't seem to make any difference. And God is calling you this morning, please choose to fear and serve me. Don't go the direction of loving your own life, serving yourself, refusing the righteousness of the cross. Come to me so I can change you and deliver you. So as Ben begins to play gratitude, we want to ask you to bow your heads this morning. We've got about two minutes left. And bring this choice to the front part of your thinking. Think about what Malachi is challenging us to. Which group are you in? Are you in the group where you're still arguing with God? You're still conversing with God. God, this is not right. It doesn't seem like I'm that bad of a person. And God is saying to you, but look, look, remember, think about who I am, what I've done, what I can do. And the day is coming when I will judge all things. And I don't want you to be under judgment. I want you to be under grace. And he invites you this morning. If you're in that group, he just says to you, I love you. I want to be gracious toward you. I want to bless you. I want to change you. But you must choose to come to the cross. You must choose that today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. But we have right now. Will you come to Jesus? Will you revere and fear the Almighty God? Will you say, God, I want to serve you. God, I I want to be a person who doesn't trivialize trivialize your, your presence. I don't want to disregard your holiness. I don't want to keep doing for myself what you have already done for me. I want to be cleansed. I want to be forgiven. I want a new beginning. Malachi has also said to us, stop keeping that tight fist on your gifts. Give generously to me. Start with with that tithe. You may have to look back and say, God, forgive me for divorcing my wife or my husband out of self-interest or anger. You value the covenant of marriage. Please forgive me. And God does. God, forgive me for living an impure life and expecting you to be okay with it. God forgives. God cleanses. And he begins anew with us. So let's get intense with God, shall we? As Ben sings for us in the last few minutes, I would invite you to either stay seated with your head bowed, talking to God, or you may need to come to the front and kneel in his presence because God is here and say, God, please forgive me. I want a new beginning with you. I want to re-intensify my faith. You may need to just stand and say in your own thoughts, this is all personal. God, I'm so glad you're my God. I praise you. I worship you this morning. We've got just a couple minutes to do that. Let's intensify our faith. All my words fall short. I've got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude? I could sing these songs. 
As we wrap up this time, those of you who have come forward, thank you. Please feel free to return to your seats. For those of you who made choices where you were sitting or stood, may God bless you. May his face shine upon you, and may he give you peace. God did not give us all of this information to harm us or to frustrate us, but to call us into relationship with him. So, God, we ask your blessing on this church today, on the people who have come. For those who have visited with us, God, we pray that their hearts would be warmed by the truth of your word and by the love of people. And God, may we truly live as servants of God in this age so that the kingdom of God might be realized as you come again and set it up. And we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm so glad you were here today to wrap up the end of the Old Testament and Malachi. I hope you come back next week for the called series, Intentional Relational Discipleship. God bless you. Thank you for giving us a little extra time this morning. Have a great week.